We understand so far, we've seen the last several weeks, that the Bible teaches there is one God. Yet this one God exists as three distinct persons. And as we discussed last week, each Trinitarian person is fully God, meaning they share the one undivided essence of God. Uh, they have the same attributes. They're all uh, equal. They're all fully God. And yet there are three distinct persons. And so the question would be, well, what makes them distinct from one another? In other words, what is it that distinguishes, what is it that's true about the Father that would not be true of the Spirit, right? Because if you can't distinguish between the two, then they're the same. Uh, was that the law of the indistinguishability of, uh, indiscernibility of uh, similarities or something? I forget the law of logic there. If, you, if, if, if everything you say about A is true of B, then A is B. Um, so what we're trying to talk about today is what distinctions can we draw from Scripture about the Father, Son, and Spirit. What makes them different? Uh, we agree they're all fully God, right? They're all, they're all one being, one essence, one nature. So then in what ways are they distinct from one another? Now, there's a few ways to answer those questions. And today we're going to talk about the concept of eternal generation. Let me preface this by saying there's a lot of uh, theologians that are far smarter than I that hold to eternal generation. I personally do not. I find it to be unhelpful. Um, and confusing, and we'll talk about some of why that is. The idea of eternal generation says that basically the Father is the origin of everything. He is dependent on no one for his existence. The Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now let me be clear in saying here, those who hold to this view are not saying that Jesus and the Spirit came into existence at a certain point in time. Is if we say, well, the Son was begotten of the Father, uh, that seems like we're saying there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and then he was born or something like that. That is not at all uh, their point. They would agree that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal, that they're all uh, eternal. Yet, there is this relationship of dependence. So the Son was begotten of the Father, uh, yet they would be quick to say not in time. He was eternally begotten of the Father. And likewise, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, this is essentially talking about the grounds of their existence, not their origin in time. Now, I've already expressed in the past, um, when we talk about the eternality of God, I don't find language of outside of time to be helpful. Uh, I think that's a very confusing concept to say God exists in some realm that doesn't have succession of moments. Um, I don't think that clarifies much of anything. And so when I hear Jesus was begotten of the Father, but this took place outside of time, so he's eternally begotten, uh, that just sounds to me like a, a fancy way of saying something that really doesn't make any sense. Um, I've recommended to you in the past James White's book on the Trinity, the Forgotten Trinity, um, and I've quoted from it several times. This is one point in which I would disagree with him. And his, I'm, I do want to give his explanation of the concept, because I don't want to just uh, caricature it, just because I don't happen to find it compelling. So here's what he writes. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father. The Father is begotten by no one. Automatically, we place this relationship within time and think of the Father originating the Son at a point in time. Most definitely not. The term, as we use it here, speaks of an eternal, timeless relationship. It had no beginning. It will have no ending. It has always been. Okay, does that communicate anything to you? Um, do you understand what he's trying to say there? Because if you do, I'd love to hear the explanation. I, it doesn't make any sense to me um, to say that God was eternally begotten. Because when you think, of, okay, what does the word begotten mean? 
right? Somebody's born, somebody comes into existence. And so if we're saying he is eternally begotten, um, I, I don't know what that means. Personally, it doesn't, it doesn't communicate anything to me. Uh, here's another point in the book where he talks about the Spirit. The relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son is described by the term procession. He is said to proceed from the Father and the Son on the basis of such passages as John 15, 26 and John 16, 7. We're going to talk about those passages in a minute. Um, so you see, the Son supposedly was begotten of the Father, but not in time. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, another point in the book, he says, the Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, uh, nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. Again, it communicates nothing to me uh, as to what is trying to be said there. It's just a bunch of words. Um, and in the book, that's all White says, and then he just moves on from there, as if that, that's supposed to make any sense. Um, so anyway, this view of Jesus having eternally begotten, been eternally begotten of the Father, uh, goes back very far in church history. Uh, the Council of Nicaea. How many of you heard of the Council of Nicaea? Okay, pretty much everybody. Um, this is a very famous moment in church history, 325 AD, right? The church meets to talk about primarily the deity of Christ. Uh, that was the main focus of the Council of Nicaea. Uh, was Jesus fully God or not? And they discussed this, they debated this. You had people like Arius who were claiming that Jesus, there was a time when the Son was not. Uh, well, that's a problem. Uh, so he's saying Jesus was not eternal. And then you have other people like Origen who would claim, no, Jesus was eternal, uh, but he's not, he's not of the same essence as the Father. They're similar, but they're not quite the same. Uh, and then finally, you have Athanasius, who was kind of the hero at the Council of Nicaea, who came up with the, the Nicene Creed. Um, he was very much sort of the mastermind behind that. And so I, I appreciate Nicaea. I think uh, pretty much everything that they did was great. The distinctions they made in the Trinity. The language of the Trinity we use comes from the Council of Nicaea. I hope you understand that. It's not in the Bible. Uh, nowhere in the Bible does it say Trinity, right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say one essence, three persons. All of that language comes from the Council of Nicaea. It doesn't mean it's not true. It's just this is where it originates from. Um, so I'm going to read for you the Nicene Creed, and you'll see this language of being begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeding in here. It says, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, the unique Son, that is, from the same substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. That's a phrase that makes no sense to me. That's sort of like saying this church building was uh, constructed but not built. What does that mean? Begotten but not made. Uh, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, whether things in heaven and things in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and became incarnate, becoming man, suffered and rose again the third day, ascended into the heavens and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Notice that's all that's said in the Creed about the Spirit. Uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to talk more about Jesus. Uh, but for those who say there was a time when he was not, and before he was begotten, he was not. And that would be the natural thought, right? If you're saying Jesus was the begotten Son of God, uh, what that sounds to me like is there was a time when Jesus didn't exist, and then he was born. He came into existence. And so the creed says, for those who would say that, 
uh, or, or who would say he was made of things that were not, or who would assert that he is of a different substance or essence, or that he is created or subject to change or alterable, the Catholic Church anathematizes them. Okay, and by the way, the Catholic, don't trip up on that. It's not Roman Catholic. It's uh, Catholic just means universal. So um, basically what they're trying to say is that the Son was begotten from the Father. He originates from the Father, not in time, and also he wasn't created. So he didn't come into existence, and yet he was begotten from the Father. Now, again, I say that that language just doesn't communicate anything, and it only adds confusion. Now, the question is, Oh, by the way, I did have a note here on the Spirit there. You notice all of that about Jesus, and then right in the middle it says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's all that they say. Because at the Council of Nicaea, they weren't really interested in the Spirit. Uh, later on, the Creed was amended and added this line. I believe this was the Council of Constantinople. We believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there you see the concept that the Son is begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, and yet they eternally exist. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. Um, now, you might be wondering, why are you bringing all this up? This is really technical, theological jargon. Uh, one reason is to say we believe in sola scriptura, right? We believe in the Bible alone as our authority for faith and practice. And so even though something may be historic and something may be in all of the creeds, I mean, this is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, this is what the Westminster Confession is. I don't know if this is the next one. On the slides, there it is. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. We agree with all of that. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Um, just because that's in creeds, just because that's been taught for literally hundreds of years, doesn't mean that we, it is binding on us. Right? The scriptures are what we try all creeds and all confessions by. Now, the question needs to come, where did this language come from? Right? Why would you say that the Son was begotten of the Father? Well, one reason uh, is what does it mean to be Father and Son? Maybe I'll, I'll throw that at you guys, see if you have an answer. Uh, in what sense is Jesus the Son of the Father? What does that mean? If it doesn't mean he was, he was born, then what does it mean? Catherine. Level of submission. Oh, you already know where I'm going with this. Okay. Cheater. Um, yes, level of submission. So the son, in other words, my understanding is that God is using human language to communicate a role of authority and submission within the Godhead. We're going to talk about that more next week. Uh, and you see this all throughout the Bible. You see the Father sends the Son. You never see the Son sending the Father or the Son... Uh, or the Father or the Spirit obeying, uh, I'm sorry, the Father obeying the Spirit. But what, what you do see is the Son says, I obey my Father. I submit to everything the Father says. Everything that I say, God has given me. Now you see this authority and submission within God. Um, so yes, that's my understanding. I was hoping to get more of a, a discussion going there, but she just cheated and gave the answer. Uh, anybody want to push back on that? Uh, think that there's any, any other way in which we could understand Father and Son relations within the Godhead? I want to just limit it to whatever she said just because I happen to agree with it. But. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. I don't want to jump on that. But you can see how um, somebody seeing Jesus as the son of the father would have to come up with some way of making that make sense. 
Okay, now, um, there's also some texts in the Bible. We're going to get to some of those later, actually. Let me, let me start with uh, John 8, 42. Let's get to some of the texts that, that theologians use to uh, support this belief that the Father is begotten of, the, or I'm sorry, the Son is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. Here are a few verses uh, that they would use. First, John 8, 42. And this is the, the King James translation just because it uses the word proceed. So I want you to see where this comes from. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. So there you see Jesus saying, I proceeded forth, I came from God. Speaking obviously of the Father. Okay, uh, what is he talking about there? I proceeded forth, I came from God. What does that mean? In that verse. Uh -huh. Right. So it's talking about the incarnation, right? Jesus coming to earth. I proceeded from the Father when I came to earth and was born. It has nothing to do with some ontological relationship of Father and Son in which he was created. Uh, in fact, the ESV, here's the clarification, and this is, I mean, similar wording. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Clearly it's talking about Jesus coming to earth. It has nothing to do with uh, Jesus' existence being grounded in the father. So he came to earth because the father sent him. And there you see uh, what we're just saying, right? The, the son's submission to the authority of God the father. Uh, all right, a couple of passages. Here are the ones James White pointed to in his book, the quotes that I gave you as evidence of the Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son. Uh, John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, speaking of the Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, what is that talking about? You're going to see a lot of these answers are really the same. In that verse, what does it seem like is being said there? When it, uh, specifically the line that the spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. Anybody want to take a crack? Right. So we're talking about Pentecost, right? That the spirit would be sent from the Father to earth. It has nothing to do with his existence proceeding from the Father. Uh, no, it's talking about God, God the Father and the Son sending the spirit to earth. Uh, John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, this is Jesus speaking, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, and that's, that's one of the verses that James White used to teach spirit proceeding from the Father and Son. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is clear as day. He's saying, I'm going to ascend to my Father and I'm going to send the Spirit to you. It has nothing to do with the Spirit coming into existence or something. Uh, from the Father and the Son. Uh, all right, now, another thing to talk about is only begotten language in the, in the New Testament. John 3.16, for example, again, here's the King James, very famous translation of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, what does that mean? Okay, we don't believe that God the Son came into existence at a point in time. So what does it mean he's the only begotten Son? Um, this, uh, well... 
there's a lot of things we can say about this, but we need to talk about the Greek term here. And I, I try not to give you Greek very often, but in this case, it really is necessary. Monogenes. Um, I think I got a chart up here. Oh, we're behind. Here we go. Monogenes is the Greek word, and you can see it's made up of two constituent parts, right? You've got mono and genes. Mono means one only. Um, and we use that word in a lot of uh, English words as well. So monos, that's pretty simple to understand. The question is, what is the genes? Okay, mono, genes. What does genes mean? Uh, one theory is that it means, uh, it comes from genao, which means to give birth to or to beget. Uh, this is the common understanding, really, through the history of the church, that this was a, a combination of only or one and to give birth, which would mean only begotten, the only one born. Okay, so you can see where they're, where they're getting that from. Uh, most Greek scholars today believe that monogenes actually was a combination of mono, again, and genos. Uh, let's see. Here it is. Genos. You remember from high school biology? Uh, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. That word genus uh, comes from this Greek word. So a uh, dictionary definition of genus would be a class of things that have common characteristics that can be divided into subordinate kinds. So, in other words, if you're going to take that understanding of genos, that it comes from uh, not genao, uh, but genos, then that would mean instead of uh, only one that was begotten, it would be only one of a kind, only one in his class, only one in his category. Okay, so uh, Jesus is the monogenes son, the only one of his kind, the only one in his category. He's the only son of the Father, not the only begotten son, as if he didn't exist, and then he was born. Uh, rather, he is the unique son of God, one with the Father eternally yet in submission to him. That's the understanding of uh, most Greek scholars today of what this term means. There is good pushback against that, by the way. This is not, uh, I wouldn't be dogmatic on this. There are some, uh, uh, full disclosure, John 1.18 is the hardest one uh, to explain with this understanding. But there's also difficulties if you take it as begotten, as we'll see in Hebrews 11. But before we get there, uh, the ESV translation of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Okay, so not only begotten, but the only one of his category. The unique son, you could just say the only son. Uh, that's their understanding of monogenes. Now, the Hebrews 11 text, which sort of solidifies in my mind that this is the correct understanding of monogenes, uh, Hebrews 11.17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Again, this is the King James translation. Okay, so Abraham offered his only begotten son, Isaac. Question, was Isaac Abraham's only begotten son? No, <laughs> right? You've got Ishmael uh, before Isaac was ever born. Uh, and then after, um, uh, I'm sorry, after uh, Abraham marries Keturah, right? And has several other children. So there is no time in which Isaac was the monogenes, if you mean only begotten son of Abraham. Moses had children before Isaac and after Isaac. So uh, that translation really doesn't work there. Whereas if you take the understanding of monogenes that it means the only one in this category, the unique son, well, that fits of Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. He was the son born at an old age to Sarah. Uh, he was definitely unique among all of Abraham's sons. And so, uh, again, I, th I think that understanding of monogenes works far better there. Now, interestingly, James White agrees with all of this. Uh, he's a Greek scholar. He knows all of this. He has a large appendix in his book on the word monogenes, explaining 
that it doesn't mean only begotten, but it means one of a kind or unique. Um, and yet he still holds to this idea of eternal generation. And I don't want to uh, be presumptuous here, but I think it has more to do with historical reasons than biblical. Uh, because it is, it's traditional, it's in all the creeds, and so we don't want to let go of it. Uh, but if it's not in the Bible, uh, do we really care? <laughs> if it's not in Scripture, if we can't defend it biblically, it uh, really doesn't matter to me what the confessions might say. And it makes sense why the confessions would say that, because they understood monogenes to mean only begotten. So they had to do something with that. And so that's where you get this language of the Son was eternally begotten of the Father, because they understood uh, we can't just say he was begotten of the Father. Because if you leave it at that, it makes it seem like he didn't exist and then he, he was born. Um, and so that's where you get the language of eternal generation. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Again, this may seem like a... And this is... I, I was not going to talk about this uh, at first. But I thought it would be a good example for us just to see the danger of building a doctrine based on one or two verses in isolation. Uh, very dangerous to come to a theological position based on one verse in the Bible or based on a couple or based on, in this case, one word uh, that we may or may not understand properly. The Bible is to be our final authority, uh, but we need to take all of what the Bible says, not just look at one or two verses in isolation, because you can get into some really uh, crazy beliefs if you do that. Uh, this will be one more example. We'll go to Psalm 2. Uh, we may have to end here. Psalm 2. Another example of a text that some would point to uh, teaching this idea that Jesus was begotten of the Father. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if you just read that verse, it might seem like Jesus was begotten of the Father. But let's read in, in context and see if we can understand what's being said here. Uh, first, notice it says, today I have begotten you. Okay, this can't be talking about eternal generation because it says this, this took place in a point in time, today. <laughs> doesn't say, I've eternally begotten you. It says, today I've begotten you. So whatever this is talking about, it is uh, referencing something that happened at a specific point in time. Psalm 2, we'll go back to verse 2 to start. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against his anointed, saying, uh, and there you can see, seems like it's talking there about the rulers who took counsel against Christ, right, when they killed him. Uh, this whole text is talking about the father and son. Um, and so this is speaking of, the, the rulers, the religious and the, the governmental rulers who took counsel against Christ uh, when he was on earth, they, they schemed this plan to kill him. Okay, verse 3. Let us burst their bo uh, bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And there you see the Father speaking of Jesus. He set him on Zion, set up his kingdom. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, so some people are plotting against Christ, trying to kill him. God is laughing at them in heaven. Uh, says, I'm going to set up my king, uh, and you can't stop this. I've given Jesus the right to reign on earth. You're not going to stop it from happening. So they killed Christ. And then God says in verse 7, You're my son today, I've begotten you. And there I believe he is speaking of the resurrection. Okay, I've given you life because he raised him from the dead. Uh, verse 8, he goes on to say that the father is giving the nations of the son as his possession to rule and reign over the earth, which we talked about last Sunday. So the this day I've begotten you, 
is in reference to the Father giving new life to Jesus after he was crucified. It's not talking about the Son being born in the past. We know this is the right interpretation, by the way. I'm not just guessing at this, because Acts 13, uh, Paul is preaching and he says, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him, speaking of Christ, down from the tree, laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were uh, now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul quotes from Psalm 2, this language of Jesus being begotten of the Father, and he says, God fulfilled that when he raised Jesus. It's not talking about an eternal relationship of uh, begetting and origin. So to recap, uh, I do not personally find the language of eternal generation of the Son to be helpful. I think it's confusing. I understand why it came into existence because of a misunderstanding of one Greek word, monogenes. Uh, but I, I don't think it adds anything to our understanding of God uh, except confusion. Uh, okay. Yet, it's, many people are, are just very dogmatic about this. Uh, they just insist that, that you're basically a heretic if this is not in your statement of faith, that Jesus uh, was eternally begotten of the Father. And I just, I, I do not feel like that sort of, I, I don't feel that compulsion to just go along with what confessions and creeds say. I think all of those things need to be tested against Scripture. And uh, if it isn't biblically based, and if it doesn't add any clarity to the conversation, I say abandon it. Um, so anyways, that was a long conversation about something you've probably never thought about before. Uh, any questions, though? Any pushback? I welcome pushback. We only have a couple of minutes here. But uh, any questions or anything that's sticking out in your mind, like, well, what about this verse? Anything like that? Yeah, and like I said, it's not a slam dunk that monogenes is. That I think there's good evidence for it. Um, I didn't get in. Grammatically, um, genos has one new, which is, corresponds to our English letter N. Okay, genao has two. Monogenes only has one. So it does seem like it's... Now, sometimes when you contract words, I understand you drop letters. So it's possible that either one is there. Uh, but best evidence seems to suggest it's one of a kind, not only begotten. Go ahead. John 1.18? No. Um, that's hard also because there's a major textual variant there. So John 1.18, it's either the only son who's at the father's side or the only God who's at the father's side. Uh, modern translations will say most of the time the only God. Uh, textual evidence seems to su suggest that. 
And the reason that's an issue is in Greek, uh, the word for God, theos, right? You've heard of theology, the study of God. Theos is the word for God. Huios is the word for son. And in their abbreviated forms, it's literally one dash difference between the two. Um, so it's easy to see where a mistake was made. The question is, which one's original? And that's not an easy thing to figure out. Uh, if, if the original was son, which some believe it is, uh, then, then uh, the understanding of monogenesis, the only unique one, makes sense. If, the if it was God, though, uh, it becomes a little bit trickier there. B books have been written on that one verse, arguing one side or the other. So that's, that is the hardest one uh, to understand what monogenes is doing there in, in John 1.18. But um, again, I think Hebrews 11.17 is sort of a, kind of to me, it's the end of the discussion. Isaac was not the only begotten of Abraham. So that can't be what that word means. <laughs> um, so anyways.